0: We read scripture this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. We read Ephesians 4 in connection with Lord's Day 18, which speaks of the ascension and the significance of the ascension. We hear the inspired word of God. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended... What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus." that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. In connection with that passage, as well as many others to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day nineteen, Lord's Day eighteen, found in the back of our psalters on page ten. We have Lord's Day eighteen question and answers forty six through forty nine. Question forty six: How dost thou understand these words? He ascended into heaven that Christ in the sight of his disciples was taken up from earth into heaven, and that he continues there for our interest until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. Is not Christ then with us even to the end of the world as he hath promised? Christ is very man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth. But with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. But if his human nature is not present wherever his Godhead is, are not then these two natures in Christ separated from one another? Not at all. For since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature he assumed. And yet is nevertheless in this human nature and remains personally united to it. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he as the head will also take up to himself us, his members. Thirdly, that he sends us his spirit as an earnest by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God and not things on earth. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul identifies here in Ephesians 4 the ascension of Jesus Christ as crucially important for the church. We don't think much of the ascension of Jesus. And we don't think much of the significance of that ascension often. What difference would it be if Jesus did not ascend into heaven? And the answer to that is much. There would be significant difference. Just as we died in Christ, were raised with Christ, we ascend with him. Christ would have given no gifts to men, as we read about. And what are those gifts? They're profound gifts for the good of His church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He would not have given His Holy Spirit for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the edifying of the body, which is spoken of here in the last part of the chapter. The fullness of the work of Jesus Christ would not be evident in us as God's people. Now we walk our earthly pilgrimage. We have the comfort, we have the encouragement that Christ cares for us and that He cares for His church. And that He's with us, that He's poured out His Spirit and that that Spirit is living and dwelling within us. That He's present in the offices within His church, working through those offices. That He's present in the pew with His saints working in us the grace by which we're able to put off the old man and be renewed according to the new. Christ has a lofty goal for each of us that we achieve the unity of the faith, the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's what the ascended Lord now is working in and through our lives. He's working in us that sanctification, guarding our tongues, controlling our emotions. He's working in us the grace by which we are holy, even as He is holy. And the only possibility of that is the wonder of the ascended Lord through His outpoured Spirit. We look at the ascension of Jesus Christ, noting the event, first of all, secondly, the significance, and finally, the advantage The ascension, like that of the resurrection, was the work of God and the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. A common view of the ascension is that at the time when Jesus went up, He changed as to His human nature. It's for that reason that Lord's Day 18 and the questions and answers 47 and 48 address that matter. Did Jesus change as to his human nature? Did he become something different as to his human nature? And the emphasis is no. Jesus did not change as to his being. That change already had taken place upon the wonder of the resurrection. His body had been raised to a new spiritual body. The change now with the ascension is a matter of location. The ascension simply means that Jesus, according to his human nature, moved. He had a change of location as to his human nature. Previously, he was on earth, and he walked among us, making appearances to men and women during that 40 years after his resurrection. Now he departed, he left, he went somewhere else. That's the language of the Bible. And he did so as to his human nature. He went to heaven. The beauty of this is portrayed in the hope that is ours with regard to death. We will die if we're not yet living when Christ returns. At the moment of death, what is the benefit? We go to be with Jesus. If Jesus wasn't in heaven, what benefit would there be with regard to death? But Jesus is in heaven, in his body. And when we die... We go to be with Him in glory. Now, as I stated, the ascension is set forth at times as the work of God, other times the work of Jesus Himself, just as we noted with the resurrection. The emphasis being, it's all of God. But some of those passages that express it to be the active work of Jesus Himself would be John 20, verse 17. I ascend unto my Father." In John 14, verse 3, and if I go, Jesus himself stating, I am going to ascend. I am going to go. In John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth it is expedient for you that I go away. In Hebrews 6, verse 20, whither the forerunner is for us entered. Jesus is the forerunner and he now has entered into the glory and the wonder of heaven. Hebrews 4, verse 14 stresses He that is passed into the heavens. He himself now has ascended into the heavens. Other passages emphasize this is God's work. Luke 24 verse 51, He was carried up into heaven. So not just a matter of him going up on his own, but that he was brought there. And the idea there is that God, the Father, was involved in the ascension. Acts 1 verse 11, The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven. God actively involved now in this wonder as God takes hold of his own son and brings him to be with him in his human nature in heavenly glory. Acts 2 verse 33. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. God is the one who accomplished this position of exaltation. Philippians 2.9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him. There's no doubt with regard to the question and the wonder of the ascension. The Bible is filled with references to it. And as is true of the resurrection, this wonder has to do with Jesus Christ as to His human nature. And this is a work of the person of the Son of God. The human nature in which he suffered is raised and now it ascends into heaven. The act of ascending then is a change of location. When a body changes location, it departs from one place in order to go to another place. Where it arrives now at a locality that previously it had never been. And that's the idea here. Jesus as to his body had never been in heaven. He had been in heaven as to his spirit. Now Christ left earth where he had been born, where he lived, where he ministered for 33 years. And he now traverses through the atmosphere, through the universe until he arrives at the paradise of God, the house of his father, heaven. When did the ascension take place? 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. In Bible study this past week, we looked at The significance of those 40 days. 40 is a number that occurs often in the Bible. Moses was 40 days on the mountain with God. Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. Elijah went 40 days without food until he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. A man-child would be presented to the Lord at 40 days of age. And Jesus also was brought up to the temple when he was 40 days Jesus began his ministry after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And you remember after he was fasting in the wilderness, he then was immediately tempted by the holy, by the, by the devil and he overcame that temptation. What's the significance of that? As we talked about, four is the number of the world. The Bible talks about the four corners of the earth. It's the number of man. Ten is the number of completeness. And so 40 refers to the fullness of man. And the idea is this, that man's life is filled with trouble. It's filled with trial. It's filled with affliction. It's filled with hardship. And after that trouble, after that hardship, God then gives victory and he gives deliverance. And we can see that in the references to 40 days in the Bible. God gave deliverance to Noah in the ark after the 40 days of rain. And 40 nights, God gave deliverance to Israel after the 40 years in the wilderness, bringing them into the blessedness of the land of Canaan. The 40 years, a reference of the time of trial, a time of hardship, a time of struggle, after which then God gives the victory, the deliverance. Jesus was required yet to be on earth after his resurrection for a time. In his resurrected body, he didn't fit any longer on earth. He was out of place, so to speak. But after 40 days, God then brought him into the glory of that heavenly home. The manner of Jesus' ascension is remarkable. It's a wonder. As Christ ascended up into heaven while he was blessing the people, in the presence of a multitude that was gathered, he went up. And the disciples were there. They spoke with him. They watched him. And all of a sudden, he went up until a cloud finally hid him from their presence. And he went up to heavenly glory, triumphing over death, over the devil, over hell. The ascension was necessary. And the necessity of the ascension is from a number of different perspectives. First of all, we can say the ascension was necessary to fulfill the types the prophecies of the Old Testament. The Bible is filled with prophecies concerning Jesus ascending into heaven. The Psalms speak again and again of it so that it never is a problem to pick Psalms, Psalters that have to do with and speak to the ascension as we did already this morning with some of them. Lift up your gates, lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. That's Psalm 24, verse 9. The King of glory ascending through the gates into heavenly bliss. Thou hast ascended on high. Psalm 68. The ascension of Enoch. In catechism, this past week we talked about Enoch. Remember, Enoch was being pursued. Wicked men were trying to kill him. And all of a sudden, Enoch was not. Because God took him. God translated him. Enoch going up to God in Genesis five twenty four, And then again, Elijah in Second Kings 2, verse 11, going up in the fiery chariot without dying, pointed to the wonder by which God would take His own Son up into heaven. The bringing of the ark to Mount Zion is one of the powerful Old Testament types. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Psalm 45, verse 5. One of the most prominent types of the ascension is that of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies after he had sprinkled, after the blood had been shed, after he had killed the sacrifice. Leviticus 16 describes that. And the book of Hebrews takes hold of it and develops it at length. Hebrews 9, verse 24, Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. So that the whole labor of the high priest as he went about his work is filled with symbolism. Symbolism that was pointing to Christ. Pointing to the redemption that was in Jesus Christ. The high priestly office of Jesus, therefore, demanded the ascension. The high priest first had to kill the animal. He he shed the blood. Then the high priest had to enter into the Holy of Holies where he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat and would present it before God. Jesus had to suffer and die. As priest, he made that sacrifice that was necessary, but that wasn't enough. He also had to enter into the presence of God in order to present that sacrifice to his Father. And Hebrews 9 builds on that, pointing out the fact that The Old Testament high priests could never do this. But Jesus did it on our behalf. And therefore, don't get hung up with the Old Testament high priests. Don't put your stock in them. Instead, look to Christ, who is the high priest, who's brought us into the presence of God and who did so on the basis of His own blood and His sacrifice. Those two aspects of His sacrifice And then his going into the presence of God cannot be separated. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Hebrews 8 verse 4. That is, if he were still on earth, if he had died on Calvary and stayed on earth, he would not have fulfilled the work that God gave him as priest. But he didn't stay on earth. At the ascension, the high priest ascended into heaven in order to bring his sacrifice to God on our behalf. Secondly, we look at the significance of this. Jesus' ascension was not merely a change in location. It was that, but it was more than that. It was exaltation. He achieved a higher status in his human nature than previously he had experienced in that nature. He had taken upon Himself our state or our status. He entered into that state of humility. And as such, took upon Himself then the curse that was due us due to sin. He became poor, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He endured contempt of men. But He conquered it all. He overcame it in order that He might ascend into heaven. And so Jesus now, upon The moment of his ascension takes on the state of exaltation. He was humbled that he might be exalted. And his humiliation involved his lowly birth, his lifelong suffering, his death, burial, descent into hell. And now his resurrection, his ascension into heaven depict his exaltation. This wondrous event is reason for joy. It's reason for thanksgiving to God. It was a day of unspeakable joy when David took the ark out of the home of Obinadab, of Obedidim, and he brought it up to Mount Zion. What a day of rejoicing that was. The ark symbolized God's presence, and now God was being brought up that he might dwell in Jerusalem and that he might rule in that capacity. The psalmist sings of that joy in Psalm 68. 1 Corinthians 15 describes that momentous event. Beloved, far greater joy accompanies Jesus ascending into heaven as He made His entrance into heaven. Imagine the joy of the angels as now the Son of God exalted as conqueror, mighty Lord. Enters into the presence of heaven. What joy there must have been among the glorified saints, as now they who believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior saw Him present with them. He now was there, He was in heaven, confirming the wonder by which they had been delivered, forgiven of all their sins, and given a right into glory. Previous to that ascension, as is evident from Revelation 12, And from passages in Jude, the devil was bringing accusations yet against the saints. He was accusing them they had no right to be there. Now those accusations are silenced. Jesus is here. He's present. And He's making that case on their behalf. How fitting, therefore, beloved, that we sing with joy and with thankfulness, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5.12 Worthy is the Lamb. No one could open that book. No one could accomplish the purpose for which God had ordained except the Lamb. And now He did it. And now He arose to a heavenly life that belongs to a heavenly state of glory the state of heavenly bliss, with his Father in heaven. By doing so, Ephesians 4 talks about the fact that he led captivity captive. Verse 8, those who were subject to the Romans, conquered by them, were led into Rome by a triumphant entry. And they would lead these captives then into the city of Rome in order to show them off before all the people. The soldiers triumphantly holding these captives ahead of them and declaring then the victory that they had accomplished over the country from which these captives had come. Jesus now does the same at the time of His ascension. Those who had tried to keep His children captive to sin and guilt. Those who had tried to keep his own people, captive, are now exposed. And especially that's the devil. The devil thought that he could keep the people of God into captivity to sin. And now Jesus, through his ascension, speaks to his people and assures us, I've conquered the devil. He's been overcome. That great enemy who is trying to keep you in bondage has been overcome. And you who were shackled, you who were in bondage, are now set free. And now the devil is in shackles. He's the one who's being controlled now. And the devil, the world, and our own flesh now are those who have been placed in bondage by the Lord. As He now holds them in His care. And He now accomplishes His good pleasure. Beloved, what great joy and what rejoicing. The power of sin has no more dominion over me. The devil, though he tries and though he attempts to sever me from my walk with God, cannot and will not bring about that separation because nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus made that sacrifice and now victorious. He rules in heaven. And He so controls the devil and all our enemies that they cannot touch us apart from His will and permission. The one in control of all things is not the devil. It's our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And what comfort, what encouragement for the church in the midst of her distress, in the midst of her trials and afflictions. The one who's seated on the throne is the Almighty Savior, Jesus Christ. What encouragement for us in the midst of our trials. We struggle sometimes and we wonder, does God love me? Has God turned His face from me? Is He going to cast me off forever? And we know, no, He will not and He cannot because the victory has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. He leads Captivity captive. And gave gifts unto men. Verse 8. One who loves Christ will be desirous to honor his Lord. He wants to bring others to a saving faith and knowledge in Jesus Christ. He desires to be a faithful witness to those around him. But He needs gifts. He needs abilities to do it. How is it that we will walk faithfully before our God and give Him all the glory? How is it that we will be godly witnesses to those around us? Christ earned those gifts. And He gives them to us. He showers them upon us. Now that He's in heaven, He freely distributes these gifts to His church and to His children. And notice the nature of them apostles prophets evangelists pastors teachers he gives us ministers who bring the word he gives us the means by which we might be spiritually edified and strengthened and what's the purpose of it for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of god unto a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ is preparing us to come with him and to receive the fullness of the joy and blessedness that is in heaven. And now that he's in heaven, he's received these gifts and he distributes them to his church. He gives them to his saints in order that they might be equipped and prepared for that glory that awaits the Bible talks about the marvelous nature in which He does this. He gives us the gift of prayer, and He encourages us to pray. And as we pray, assures us our prayers are heard. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. James one verse five. Christ equips His church while she's on earth with that which is necessary. For this glorious work. The church is Christ's. We look to Him. We are dependent upon Him. We cry out to Him. And we do so assured. He loves His church. And He will provide for her everything that she needs. He will make sure that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. He will make sure that His saints are perfected. He will make sure that the ministry does go forth. He will make sure that the body of Christ, the church, is preserved unto the coming, again, on the clouds of glory. This is his work. And this is the work in which he is engaged then from glory. What encouragement, what comfort belongs to us? Now the catechism, as it's true of the other benefits, immediately directs our attention to of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven. Again, this is not just an intellectual thing. This is a spiritual wonder. And that must be our focus also this morning. The Catechism mentions three benefits. We look at the first one. That He's in heaven as our ascended Savior. And He functions as our advocate. Our lawyer, so to speak, before God. Our sins form a barrier. And because of those sins... We're prevented from speaking directly to God. But Jesus Christ is our advocate. We pray for Christ's sake. Through Christ, we have access into the presence of God. And we're able to bring our concerns and cares to Him. And we have Jesus Christ in heaven pleading on our behalf. Reminding us of the wonder of His sacrifice. And the fact that He stands before the living God... On the basis of that sacrifice, 1 John 2 beautifully talks about and elaborates on that testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We read concerning our own sins. My little children, these things write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the propitiation, that is the covering, He's the payment. For our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Our sins rise up against us. We know the horror of them. But we have one who made that payment. And he's in heaven, so that when we sin, we need not be filled with fear. We repent, we turn from that sin. And we confess the wonder of the work of our Savior on our behalf. An advocate is one who looks after our interests. One who loves us and cares about us. One who stands in our place and has an interest in our case. We need an advocate because we can't plead before the Almighty God. Who can stand before the presence of Jehovah, the God of heaven and earth? But we have Jesus who stands in our place. He has an interest in us. And He comes before the Father And he pleads our case. Now how much more precious than having an earthly judge to represent us? There are times when we need an advocate, and there are especially three different areas in our lives where we see the benefit of that. Perhaps someone takes us to court by a lawsuit. And now we find ourselves in court. Foolish it would be for us to try to represent ourselves. We don't know all the legal terminology. We don't know all that is involved. We need a lawyer to stand on our behalf and to represent us. There may be a less familiar example in lobbyists. Lobbyists who represent certain causes before the government. And so, for instance, there are powerful Groups, the National Rifle Association, the abortion industry that have lobbies. And these people speak on behalf then of the group of citizens to those who are in Congress. Another example might even be in the church. Sometimes there's a situation where an individual finds himself unable to present his case before the consistory. He's not equipped to write carefully or to speak fluently. And so as he comes before the consistory and desires to present his case, the consistory then allows that person to have another who speaks on their behalf. It's called a mand or a mouth. And so that person now brings the case of that individual, the one that he represents. He doesn't bring his own ideas. He doesn't bring his own thoughts. He seeks faithfully to be a voice of that other to the consistory so that he stands as an Mond, a mouthpiece, a mouth of that one. Your Lord Jesus Christ is your advocate in heaven. He's standing before Jehovah God with your interest in mind. The Belgic Confession, Article 26, sets forth the remarkable nature of this. The Roman Catholic Church felt that they needed a different advocate. Mary would be more sympathetic and therefore they desired in Mary an advocate. Other churches similarly may be tempted. Other saints may be tempted. In article 26 of the Belgian Confession, we read in the last half of the first paragraph, if then we should seek for another mediator who would be well affected toward us, whom could we find who loved us more than he who laid down his life for us? even when we were his enemies. And if we seek for one who hath power and majesty, who is there that has so much of both as he who sits at the right hand of his Father and who hath all power in heaven and on earth? And who will sooner be heard than the well-beloved Son of God? What encouragement there is for us. We have a dear friend in high places on our behalf. You know the blessedness of that, the meaningfulness of that when it comes to the things of this earth. If we're ticketed perhaps for a violation, but we know the sheriff, we know the police chief, he's our friend. We try to get perhaps him to assist us. We're trying to get a loan, but we know a banker and we know one who maybe would assist us. We try to seek out that one perhaps to assist us. If we have to go to the hospital, but we're uncertain as to the circumstance and situation, but we know a nurse or we know a doctor who has connections and who knows individuals perhaps in prominent places. What assistance these individuals can be to us. Someone with authority, someone with influence can be of tremendous help. Beloved, how much more precious is this truth My Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven and He's looking out for my benefit. I can have peace. In the circumstances of life, I know nothing happens by chance. Everything is being directed and ordered by Him. He's the one ruling all things. Now, beloved, with that knowledge, I can have peace. With that knowledge, I can sleep at night. With that knowledge, I can relax. Just imagine if that's the case in an earthly sense and the impact it has on us from an earthly perspective. How much more spiritually I can go to bed and sleep because I know Jesus Christ has all my interests in his heart. I know the one who's ruling all things and directing all the course of the world is my Lord Jesus Christ. What happened to me, my loved one, wasn't an accident. It was all ordained by Christ for a purpose. Everything that's taking place in my life, in the life of the church, has a purpose. I don't have to be so vexed about my job situation, so concerned about those medical tests, about the family situation in which I find myself. So easily, we're filled with anxiety, filled with concern. We get wrapped up in turmoil. But beloved, Jesus Christ, your Lord is ruling all things in glory on your behalf. He went to heaven for your well-being and for the well-being of your loved ones. He went to heaven for the good of His church. Sometimes we find prayer so difficult because of our sin. The main work of an advocate is to plead our place in the context of our sins as First John 2 pointed out. We have a lot of worries about our parenting, about our children, about our parents, about our jobs, about other things. But what's our greatest concern? My sin and my sinfulness. That's the burden that I bear. And what about that sin? What's going to happen when I face judgment day? Christ's presence with the Father means... You have access freely to God. And it means that the one who paid for your sin is the one now who stands before the living God. He's making intercession on your behalf. When we feel we can't pray, we feel we can't even come up with the words, we're so distressed, we have an advocate. We have one who's standing in our place in heaven making those prayers on our behalf. And He's in our nature. He understands the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted in every respect like as we. He understands the challenges of life. And if Jesus Christ is in the presence of your Heavenly Father on your behalf, don't you think He will... Do everything He can to carry out your well-being today, tomorrow, and every day of your life. He takes His own blood and He pours that out before the Father on your and my behalf as the payment for our sins. And He gives us life everlasting. Your blood, my blood, will never need to be shed As payment. He made that sacrifice. Now, there's one thing he needs to do still. And that awaits judgment day. On judgment day. He will plead our cause. There's the judgment that takes place at the moment of death. And then there's the judgment that takes place at the end of the world. When our bodies will be raised. And we will stand before the final throne. I am not my own. But I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. How horrible to be alone on Judgment Day. But we won't be, because Jesus Christ will be there with us, pleading our cause on the basis of His own perfect sacrifice and leading us into the glory of heavenly bliss on the basis of His work and His sacrifice, bringing us body and soul into the glory of heavenly life. What a wonderful advantage. I have an advocate in the presence of my Father in heaven. But secondly, the second benefit relates to the fact that Christ is preparing a place for us. We have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that He, as the head, will also take up to Himself, us, His members. Already, a true man is in heaven in his flesh. One who is bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. And as Jesus stands in the presence of his Father in heaven, he does so as our head. The body, in part, still remains on earth yet. But where the head is, the whole body will go. And that's the blessed assurance we have. All the members of the body... Must be taken up that they might be one with Him. And what a beautiful prayer Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer in John 17 that they may be one, that we all may be one, and that not one would be lost. Every last one of His own will be brought into the fullness of that heavenly bliss. And He's there, preparing a place for us, and seeing to it that we're being prepared for that place. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so what's necessary? The ministry of the gospel is necessary for us now. The work of the Spirit by which we put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. Verse 22, and that we be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. Verse 24, verse 24. Christ at work in order that we might be prepared and that place might be prepared for us. What this means, beloved, is that He's working in us more and more that we live in earnest anticipation of our heavenly home. So easily we become caught up in the things of this life and focused on the things here below. And so our ascended Lord uses the Word and He uses trials and He uses afflictions to direct us heavenly. We have a certain and a sure hope in heaven. We take that for granted sometimes. We don't live in anticipation of it as we ought. The best way to understand what God has given us in that regard perhaps is to think about what it would be like if we didn't have that. And sometimes we talk that way, don't we? Perhaps we're in the hospital and we see another family in the hospital and we interact with them a bit and we find out they don't have any kind of hope spiritually. Imagine not having hope from a spiritual perspective. How could you endure the trials, the troubles of life? When a person loses and has no hope, then He abandons everything. Everything gets thrown away if we don't have hope. Our life is empty. It's senseless. It's purposeless. What a priceless comfort to know and to be sure that I have heavenly life already now within me. And that my confidence is linked to my head, Jesus Christ from whom nothing can separate me. And that despite the devil's attempts to try to sow doubts, despite the devil's attempts to try to separate me from that hope, that is my destiny and nothing can separate me from it. My life is lived in hope. I'm Christ's and I belong to Him. Is there profit? Beloved, what marvelous advantage there is. Now He's with me. He's upholding me. And I look forward to the day when He will bring me into the fullness of that joy where there will be no more sin, no more temptation, no more struggles. Thirdly, that Christ ascended in order to send His Spirit. And we're going to look at that in more detail in the coming Lord's days. But that needs special emphasis as well. We belong to Jesus Christ objectively by virtue of election subjectively we live the life of Jesus Christ because we're regenerated and we're united to Him and we receive all His blessings. He gives us His Spirit as that Spirit lives within us as an earnest. Now we're familiar with what an earnest is. It's a down payment. And it's commonly used in terms of buying a car, buying a house. We put money down, earnest money, That guarantees that we will continue to make the payments. It's a beginning of what's going to come later. Now we put this down, but we promise month after month we're going to make these payments. It's proof the rest is going to follow. Jesus gives us His Spirit so that now already we know that life that is spiritual and heavenly. We have it as we have a beginning And he gives us that as the confidence, the assurance that we're going to receive the fullness. We have a heavenly life already now and we sit together already now with Christ in heavenly places. He's going to bring us into the fullness of that joy in his time. Connected with the ascension, the Spirit has an important role. Since the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, it's the Spirit that prompts us to keep looking to Christ, to look away from self and to look to Christ. The Spirit of Jesus Christ directs us to the benefits that Christ has earned for us. It's so human to look at ourselves, look at our own sins, look at ways we can try to fix the matter, look at things we can try to do. So easily we fix our attention on ourself, on the things here below. Or we fix ourselves on the troubles that are here below. And that preoccupies us and brings us down. Preoccupied with the actions of others against us or our own sins, our own struggles. But either way, our focus is earthbound. Christ, our Savior in heaven, directs us heavenward. And he gives us the focus by which we confess that we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, who is seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are here on earth. Those who live out of the Spirit are seeking spiritual things. They're seeking to live out of the last part of Ephesians 4. To live as those who are forgiven and who forgive others, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven me. Setting aside bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. Seeking to live out of the Spirit by which I've been sealed Unto the day of my redemption. The power in our lives that controls us is Christ by His Spirit. Grieve not the Spirit, verse 30. We've been sealed unto the day of redemption. And so we live out of that Spirit. The The church of Jesus Christ, beloved, confesses that Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven. Bodily He's there, laboring diligently for our benefit and that's why our focus also needs to be heavenly and our focus can be heavenly because of the work of his spirit equipping us encouraging us to focus our sights on the things that are above and by that power beloved we go forth we enjoy earthly things we make use of them but our hearts are not set on them our hearts are set on the things that are heavenly Vacations, homes, clothes, cars. These are not the pursuit of our lives. We have the power of the Spirit within us moving us to seek heavenly things. And we live for Him and for His glory. Beloved, is that your life? Are you a pilgrim, a stranger here below confessing that your home is heavenly because that's where your Lord is? And you look forward and long for the day when you too will be able to live with Him in that bliss. By God's grace, such is the desire He has implanted within us. And by the power of His Spirit, we live unto Him. And our conversation is heavenly. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the truth of the ascension, for the faith by which we lay hold upon that wonder, and for the Spirit whose power strengthens us day by day to live unto Christ. We are sinners and we are weak. We thank Thee for that sacrifice made on our behalf and for our High Priest who continues in intercession on our behalf. And we look forward to that day when He will take us with all of Thy saints to be with Thee to eternity. Amen.